Hey, it's Dr. Angles. Welcome to Advocate. Please be advised that the subject matter that we will be discussing may be disturbing to some listeners. And a big shout out to my friend Corey Hendricks for allowing me to sample his song, Invocacio. You can now download his song from Apple Music, Spotify, and more. Go check him out, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, Advocate family, it's Dr. Angles. I've got my guest speaker here, Dr. Jody Larman. Hi, Dr. Larman. Hi, Dr. Engels. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Dr. Larman and I worked together for what, like six years or so at one of the California state prisons here. We're both specialists in forensics. And so I brought Dr. Larman here today to talk about a personal story of hers that she felt comfortable sharing. And I'm just going to let her sort of take the lead on that. So Dr. Larman, let's talk about your personal journey. I think and I'm really good with sharing this was because I didn't realize that this was such an important issue the sexual abuse, but what happened from it. Um, my son and I went to see these advocates a couple years ago and when mentioned what had happened, they just stopped and said, oh my God, you're the one. And apparently my son's story and my son's incident has helped to change the way that um, respite care and child care workers through the regional center are now screened and parents know what to look for so apparently they said my son and I as far as in the uh, special needs world the respite care world so wow yeah incredible maybe give us a little bit of background about what all of those fancy words are because some of our listeners might not know okay my son is developmentally delayed he was diagnosed at uh, two years old, two and a half years old, with what's called developmental apraxia speech, which is a motor skills, um, a motor skills. Ah, I'm losing the word. Um, disorder, and it's where the brain knows what to say, the mouth knows what to say, but the, there's a disconnect. It's like the brain works fine, the mouth works fine pathways between the brain and the mouth do not work well. So where he thinks he's saying something, but something else is coming out. Strokedoms get this. Mm. Um, and so they think they're saying a word and it comes out to be something else. It's kind um, of like an aphasia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Axia for some reason. Got it. And it's developmental. And the harder you push someone to try to speak, the worse it becomes. They just and so he was uh, diagnosed with that, and he was also diagnosed with developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. So they knew that there was something in the social, emotional, and occupational areas that were, but it wasn't autism. Now with the new DSM, it is part of the spectrum, but at the time it was not. It was a separate thing. So now it is one of the spectrum disorders. Okay. So he had that. Because of that, he is a regional center consumer, and regional center special needs children find support services. One of the services is called respite care. 
And respite care is where a caregiver comes to the house and gives the parent a break. And that break could be for going out on a date. It could be for going and getting a massage just to get away from the day-to-day giving of care to a special child. Right. I can imagine that it takes a lot of patience and work from you and a lot of time for you. And being a single mom. Oh, on top of that, absolutely. Yeah, I had no, it was me and my son or my son and I 24-7. And then when he went to school and I went to work, came home, it was my son and myself. Mm-hmm. I was taking, I was the one taking him to therapies and he had many different therapies, speech therapy, occupational therapy, adaptive skills therapy, social skills therapy, um, so all of the types of therapies that would be implemented for anyone with a pervasive developmental disorder. Right. Okay. So um, it, we had, we were through the regional center, we were given respite hours, 30 hours to use a month for respite care. And respite care is that additional person that comes to assist with you so that you can it's have. It's almost care. like they- it's almost yeah. like what? It's almost like a babysitter. Okay, got it. But they're they're specially trained, person. correct? They should be. That's the there you go. They should be specially trained to take care of special needs. Okay. The really sad and unfortunate thing is it's not a high paying so you don't always get quality. I see. I see. We've had respite workers that sadly have come and stole money and they're gone the next day. Oh, that's, Um, that's, that's terrible. I mean, we, you and I both know working with like, you know, when you're working with special needs, sorry, I think we've got a delay. (laughs) Um, no, I was going to say that like the two of us, we we're not strangers to working with serial killers, serial rapists, gang members and predators of all different types. And what we do know is that anybody who has like some kind of antisocial behavioral patterns, they're very opportunistic. So they're going to go for positions or um, yeah, places where they can have access to victims. And so in your case, it sounds like there was respite workers that had access to homes where they could steal from. And they're also uh, unsupervised and they're in charge of supervising someone with a developmental disability. And if for those who don't really understand, these individuals have both cognitive and possibly motor or speech delays. So they're, they're in motion or they're their intelligence is less than average. So they're slower in processing. They don't fully understand. They're very, very vulnerable targets. So it's very upsetting to know that these things happen. And so I think if I remember correctly, your son was also victimized in another way by one of these workers, right? Okay, so why don't you tell us a little about that if you're comfortable. Okay, so the background of my telling you that it's hard to find a good respite worker. It's hard to find someone that's really good in a low-paying job. And we ended up with, uh, Regional Center asked if we would be comfortable with a male. Now, at the time, 
my son was seven or eight when he first came. Okay. Or no, I'm sorry. My son was six. We had him for two and a half years. So his chronological age is six and his mental age would be comparable to what? It depends. In some areas, six. In other areas, four. In other areas, three. He was verbal, thank God. And this will come in in a minute. But we had this, and I can say his name, right? Because he's in prison now. So I think I can say the name. Yeah, it's your story to tell. You weren't, you weren't, um, he wasn't a patient of yours. There's no confidentiality except for your own. So if you want, you can share freely what you want to share. Okay. So this 26, 27 year old man came, Jeremy Stockton. He was married. He had actually, he was engaged and I think he got married right about that same time. And when I, I was a regional center vendor, meaning I did services for the regional center. And when I had to be credentialed to do services for the regional center, I had to go through two hours of interviews. I had to give them all of my background. I had to be live scanned. And I figured, okay, so here's this male. Right. He's um, gone through that. He's, he's probably had a background track. Right. Um, I was talking, my neighbor at the time was a sheriff, and he and I were talking about, should we ha- should I have a male? And he said, you know, he doesn't really fall into the, the age range of, so he should be okay. And I said, my big thing was he should be background checked. So right. absolutely, does a good job. I know I went through a pretty grueling check mm-hmm. just to go to people's homes. So I would be okay. So he was our caregiver for two and a half years. And he was great. He came every time he was supposed to come. He interacted with my son very well, as I was to find out a little too well. Uh, I had a friend, I had friends who would tell me, Jeremy is a godsend. Jeremy is great. He's always there for you. Oh, so you had friends that also had him as a worker for them. No, but they met him. Oh, they oh, got it. That's a nice guy. He's always there for you. Whenever you call at the last minute, he's there. Oh, you wow. have never had to, to worry about him in your home. He's you never, dependable, reliable. Very yeah, reliable. Which is important. He was, then he got married. His wife worked at the agency. Uh, she got pregnant. He had a little boy. And so it was like, okay, so now, you know, he's got a little boy. He's married. My son loves him. He's always there. After his son was born, he started getting a little, the only words I can use to describe would be squirrely. Okay. He wanted to leave early often. And he wanted to get back home to his wife and his son. And it was like, okay, you know, it's a newborn. I get it. No problem. But we used to sit and talk a lot after his time was done. And now it was like, I just want to go home. I just want to get to my wife. And I was like, okay, seems a little normal. It's, it's a new baby. Well, probably about April, March, April, my son started wetting the bed. So this was in 2011. So my son was seven. Okay. And he started wetting the bed again. For those that aren't aware, what does that generally signify at that age? 
Yeah, that's an acting out behavior that something is happening and they don't know how to really express it. Right. It happens a lot when there's new siblings. Um, and also, which did not cross my mind, when there's sexual abuse going on. Right, some kind of trauma. Yeah. So I was getting upset with my son. I'm like, what is happening? Why are you wetting the bed? And it came, it was just out of nowhere. He just started this. Yeah. So that's where it's kind of a red flag, you know, either there's something medically wrong or there's something emotionally wrong. So, um, then he started rubbing on the outside of his pants. He started rubbing his crotch Mm -hmm. and I was like, what is somebody touching you? Has somebody touched you? And he's like, no. And why did that alert you when he did that? I mean, my first thought would be there's social learning theories. If someone has doing has done that to him, then he's learning to do it to him. Yeah. That would be my first thought. Well, that my first thought was some something is either he's got a rash. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, you know, something's going on because maybe was, something's fitting too tightly. Yeah, yeah. He never went inside his pants. It was always on the outside. Okay, he would rub more of his thighs and not his crotch. Okay. So he was in a social skills group at the time and I mentioned it to her, to the therapist. And afterwards she mentioned to me, he's been rubbing and I'm like, yeah, it just started a couple of days ago. So I asked him about it and he still couldn't tell me why. Right. And in his case, there's that cognitive delay as well. The, the aphasia type. So the language issue was there as well. So he had more of an impairment in sharing why he was doing that than maybe a a child that didn't have a developmental delay. Right. So it was like doubly hard for you. Okay. And I know that Jeremy used to sit in with Sean and took a bath. So I asked Sean, please show me when you take a bath, what does Jeremy do? Because I didn't want to lead him in anything. And so Sean showed me and never anything appropriate he never indicated anything inappropriate at the time so it was like okay what is going on something fine but I cannot figure it out because even asking Sean in the bath Sean did not indicate touching anywhere and I said okay has Jeremy ever touched you here and he said no okay so trying to figure this out well one Saturday this was March about the 26th, whatever the Saturday was in 2011. And Jeremy was at my house and I went out to the store. No, I'm sorry. The week before that, I apologize. I went into my den because I was home and Jeremy had in the corner of the couch and Sean was just wearing underwear and they were playing and I stopped and Jeremy stopped what he was doing. They looked like they were wrestling and I said, I'm sorry, what's going on? Sean, you need to put on pajama pants. Sean was like, okay. And he put his pajama pants on. And Jeremy's like, oh, I'm sorry. We were just playing ball. I'm sorry. And I was like, okay, that seemed a little weird. Sure, I would flag that. But but it's like, that's, I'm going to put a pin, like you said. I'm going to put a pin in that. It's not normal, but it's not inappropriate. And they were playing. It wasn't. Yeah. And also you have that added layer of Sean maybe not knowing what's appropriate and what's not with his cognitive delays. Right. And, and again, it's like one of those where you can read into it. Right. Exactly. And am I 
into it or am I not? So the following Saturday when he was over, I went to the store and I came back. And when I came back, Jeremy was like, I'm home. I want to be with my wife. I want to be with my kid. And I was like, huh, okay. I just want the house, but sure, go ahead. You can leave. And he wanted out. He wanted to go as fast as he could. So I closed the door behind him. I thought that's kind of, and hmm. Sean said to me, mommy, mommy, Jeremy made it bigger. He, he like, made what? it bigger? Yeah. And he goes, mommy, mommy made it bigger. And I go running upstairs and I look and Sean's in the bed with his penis in his hand. Oh boy. He's and is he still seven? Yep. Oh my. Yeah. So that's when you kind of knew. Um, I'm sorry. Eight at this point. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm getting okay. He was eight at this point. Still. So, <laughs> yeah. Not that much different. Not that much different. No. So he said, you know, He's like, yeah, mommy, mommy, Jeremy made it bigger. And this is one of those things where, like, my worst nightmare, hairs on my neck stood up. Oh, sure. And I thought, okay, psychologist mode. Right. I don't want to lead him into any, saying anything that's not true. I want him to be able to tell me, some mode is, I'm going to kill someone right now. Right. So I went in and I took my phone and I went in his bedroom and I hit record and I said, what happened? And he goes, well, he pushed it down, down, down. And it went up, up. Mm. I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, he pushed it down. And I'm okay. Were you in the bathroom? And maybe he was urinating and it wasn't going into the toilet. I couldn't quite figure out what he was trying to me. And he said, well, he rubbed it like this and he like the corner of his bed. And I was like, okay, this is not, I'm trying to keep my composure. Right, absolutely. And he said to me, Jeremy told me to keep it. It was a secret. And oh, not to tell you. No. And at that point, it was like, no. And no, that's a big thing is when a kid tells you it's a secret, I was told it was a secret, red flag, warning, sirens going off. And I said to him, I'm really glad that you told me because you and I have no secrets. Oh, that's a great response. Yeah. I said, it's not okay that Jeremy told the secret. Because you and I have no secrets. So thank you so much. And Sean just said, can I go to bed now? I was like, okay. So, because my neighbor was a sheriff at the time, or my neighbor at the time was a sheriff, I called him and I asked him, please come over and listen to this. And he and his wife came over and we listened to the recording. And he said, yeah, something, something's going on. And I'm going to pass this to my friends in the special victims unit and see. And I said, you know, I need to find out what's going on. I'm not going to ruin someone's life if it's nothing. Just that maybe Sean was, you know, peeing in it. He sure. had to get it into the toilet. Right. But at the same time, this guy is never coming to my house again. Right. I don't over now. I need to find out what exactly happened. Right. Because even if it was something like that, he's he's supposed to, to be guiding Sean into more appropriate behaviors too. So allowing certain things right. to happen is also a boundary issue in and of itself. And I don't want to, you know, these are very serious allegations. I used to work in a group home where the kids made allegations and get the staff all the time. And those allegations stick. 
Even if they're unfounded, they still become part of the record. So I thought knowing, knowing this information and being a psychologist, it's like, I'm not going to ruin someone's life unnecessarily. I need to find out exactly what happened and I'm going to. Right. But I I would imagine you're dealing in a group home with children more like generally older, but also not developmentally delayed. Right. Some of them were, some of them had severe problems. Some of them had some developmental. Okay. But so, it didn't matter. They still right. would make allegations. Sometimes they were true. And a lot of times they were. Un- right. But you so know, your son. Yeah. And you know, right. your son is not going to happen. Right. 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 So I asked his YMCA. I asked his teachers if they could just what happened? I said, but can you just talk to Sean about maybe what he does when Jeremy is over? And they both told me, no, Sean never mentioned anything inappropriate. I'm like, okay, I really need to get to the bottom of this. And I wouldn't let Jeremy at my house, but I wouldn't tell him why. And asked my son if he would talk to, oh, he, he talked to his, she's a marriage family therapist who was doing the social skills group. And I told her what went on, and I said, can you talk and see if you hear anything? Because also, she's a reporter, so it's like if Sean tells her anything, she's got to report right. as well. Absolutely. Mandated At the end of class, you told me they talked. She said they talked about um, inappropriate touching. They talked about strangers. Sean said nothing. So it's like, okay, I, I need to find out, because if he said something to the police, then we're still nowhere. So I, he would talk to my significant other at the time and he said he would. So when my significant other was over, Sean started, they started talking and I went upstairs. And when I came back downstairs, my significant other was like white. And he's like, we're calling the now because Sean told my significant other more than he told me. Oh, wow. So we called the police. The police came about 10 o'clock at night. They came and I had to, again, mommy mode, psychologist mode. Thankfully, they worked together because I told Sean, look, these officers, they're here for you. How cool is that? They want to you. Look at it. And they, you know, explained all their gear to him and then they, they talked to him. Separate. So they made it a less threatening interaction that would otherwise be scary for any eight-year-old, especially one that's developmentally delayed. That's great. And it's scary for anybody when right. you talk about this stuff. So my, in my head, my is to make him feel as comfortable as possible that he did nothing wrong. Right. And so they wanted us to go to where the scan team is, it's the sexual abuse um, center where they, they were going to interview him. And again, we're talking 10 o'clock at night. Mm. So we get our, and my significant other was in his car and we're on the way following the police. And I made it a game too. I'm like, Sean, it's a good thing. The police are not behind us because you know, we didn't do anything wrong. And I'm going to stress that, that we didn't do, and he didn't do anything wrong. Good. We get to the scan place and the 
traumatic for him. They had him take his clothes off. He had to put his feet up in like stirrups, like Mm -hmm. women do in a gynecological exam. Mm -hmm. And they took pictures of his genitals. And at one point they got so close to him. And I'm trying to be, again, make this normal that when they took the camera, his butt. And I said, Sean, don't fart. Don't fart. So I was trying to laugh and make this right. Like make it seem less formal. Yeah. Scary. Scary and intimidating. And the only thing he got really upset was they asked him for a urine sample. And he started crying and he's like, Mom, if I do this, I won't have any pee in the morning. And I said, No, Sean, it's okay. You'll have enough pee. And he was upset. And it took a while just to get him to give a urine sample because he thought that that was all he had would happen tomorrow. So they took him and interviewed him separate from me. And then they called me in. The police were listening and they called me in. And the one officer said, I wanted to punch a hole. And he said, what your son said, he goes, we are going get this guy tonight. Whatever we have to do, we will get him. And the, the interview said to me, this is how we knew. She said, that Sean said to him, Jeremy, my pee is low. Jeremy's pee is white. Oh, no. And oh. I felt so sick to my stomach. I couldn't. I was just like, this is so not happening. And I went home. Sean and my, my ex went home. And I dated. They said, we are going to do everything that we can to get him tonight. So you will feel... And at one in the morning, I remember they called me and they're like, we got him. We got him. He's now in jail. They had gone to his house and knocked on the door and he's with his son and his wife. And he was wearing little baby, I think it is from family guy, Mm -hmm. pajama pants. And they picked him up and they said, so now we're going to send in. They said, we have lieutenants. We have officers on this. We have the big guns on this. Because Jeremy not only worked for the regional center, Jeremy worked for the YA, the YA LA Unified School District, and the LA Unified School District. He was the epitome of a predator. He was putting himself in situations with access to everything he wanted. The next morning, I want to say it was before noon. I got a call from the detective handling the case, and my stomach was just in knots. And he's kids. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and he said, and I listened to Sean, and I thought, oh, my God, what are they going to tell me? They're not going to do anything. And he said, I want to tell you that his story was said so well, and I believe everything. And oh, that had to have made you feel some... I elated. Right. And at the same time... Infuriated, and yeah, I can... Like, imagine. oh, my God, what happened to my son? Oh, they had, um, the, the most amazing part of this all, he confessed. He didn't even deny. Confessed. How often do you think that that's, that happens? I mean, in our experience working with, we've worked with a lot of like serial or sexual predators and some of whom were, are in the pedophilia realm. How many, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't really often meet many that 
own up to what they've done. They try to minimize it or find excuses to rationalize it. So this is very rare. Well, he did, because I listened to the confession tape, and again, it made my skin crawl. His rationale was, asked for it. My son wanted it. My oh son enjoyed gosh. it. My son he would rationalize it. it, but he still yeah. confessed. That's okay. We'll take the confession. I'll take your confession. Right, right. Um, but he still tried to rationalize. You know, they would be playing, he said, they would be playing and would stick his crotch in his face. He wanted something and it's like, no, my son was eight years old and had no idea. And he's delayed. He's not even thinking about those things. Not at all. Not at all. Um, they held, because he had access, he had a caseload with the regional center. The, the, they did um, press conferences all day long on all the news channels to try to find families to come forward if anything happened. Oh. The good and bad. The detective said that Emerald said, oh, no, 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 not Jeremy. It's a false allegation. It's not true. And then he would say he confessed. And the families were like, well, it didn't happen to my kid. Oh, there we go. Son was the only verbal child. Oh my god! All the other children on the caseload were nonverbal. Oh my gosh! So he's 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 preying on even the more vulnerable children. Ones that yeah. he knows that he has a more likelihood of getting away with this. Oh, and no one would know. And no the one would know. The fortunate thing is, with all the interviews that were done, we think that Sean was the first. Oh, and gosh. fortunately, between the time of him not coming to my house and being arrested was about two weeks or so. Okay. Um, there was another little that the mom was a helicopter mom, and she said, there's no way, no way, no way this happened to my son because I was always around. The dad wanted Jeremy to be there. The mom did. She fought for it. I, I listened to the tape, and they went to the park, Jeremy and the little boy, and the mom said, no, I always went with. And in the tape, he says, oh, no, not this time. And oh, they were in the bathroom, and the little boy told the mom, I saw Jeremy's penis. Now, they couldn't do anything with that, though, because they don't know, did he see it while Jeremy was going to the bathroom? He obviously didn't hide it. Right. Or did he see it while doing something else? The kid's not verbal. Oh gosh. And so, the mom is clearly in denial, which is not uncommon. We see yeah. that so much. It's that diffusion of responsibility. They don't want to accept what could be because that's too difficult. It's too hard. That means that it could have, could have happened to their child and they have to tap in and tune into those feelings and be, and do something with that. So they would rather stay in denial. And like, if it happened to your child and you were supposedly around all the time, what is that you? Right. You know, I'm not saying that, but. No, I know. What does it I say know. about if you. That's clearly her trying to deflect or project out like, no way, you know, no, this, I was there. I had to have been there. Just there was, that's clear denial that she does not even want to entertain the idea that this could have happened to her child. And in a lot of ways, I think uh, all of us, all, all parents or all anyone in general could, could relate to that to some degree. Like you don't want to believe that that's possible, but the reality is that sexual predators, they go for 
people, places, things that allow them the access to their prey. And this guy had access at the regional center, LA Unified School District, and what was the uh, YMCA? I mean, he literally gave himself access to all avenues where he could, he could interact with at risk children. And he was, this is the track we kind of pieced together through what he said. And the detective of mine was, Sean was the first one. Okay. There's always a first one that they, that they, they're like getting their toes warm. (laughs) Yeah. They're grooming them. Their teeth on. Yeah. Um, and if they see that they could do it, then moving on and moving on and moving on. So then there was the second one and that second one would have been a victim had not have been arrested. Oh my God. Had she not have said anything, it would have very much been worse. So Sean was then, um, interviewed by the police. He was interviewed by the And every time we tried to normalize it and I had to tell Sean over and over again that Jeremy isn't coming to the house, not because you said Jeremy Uh, is not coming because he did something wrong. So by normalizing not supposed to do. Right. So you're trying to make sure that he doesn't feel responsible for the consequences that happened to Jeremy, which is something that a lot of sexual assault victims feel they're afraid of the consequences of coming forward. They, they already feel responsible enough for the incident in some way that's completely irrational in general, but then to see the fallout that occurs on to their perpetrator, they're going to feel responsible for that. They some a lot of times victims feel responsible for their loved ones when they get angered by the news So the fact that you, luckily for you, you're a psychologist, so you knew exactly how to handle that situation, whereas a lot of our listeners are not, you know, trained in this area. So a good tip is if a loved one comes to you and tells you something happened to them, like they were a victim of a sexual crime, the key is, is not to let that make you angry because the person, your, your loved one will then feel like they're responsible for your anger. Instead, like you said, quote, normalizing it, making sure that they're comforted because it's about them, that it's not their fault. They're not responsible. No one's upset because of them. That's the biggest thing. So the fact that you did that and the police were doing that with him is so commendable. When you're told this is a secret, do not tell anybody. And then you go and tell someone, unfortunately, too many people who felt like they were responsible for what happened to them. They didn't stop it. They should have stopped it. And the thing is, when you're put in a position, a very vulnerable position, person of authority, a person that's bigger than you. Someone you're told to trust and listen to. And and so you think, well, why didn't I stop it? Ask. I tell people all the time, ask your eight-year-old self. Ask your 16-year-old self. Ask your 18-year-old self. It's a very good point. Yeah. If someone comes to you now, would you hold them responsible or would you hold the perpetrator responsible? And you got to hold the perpetrator responsible. Absolutely. And I would tell my 
that you did nothing wrong. Two weeks after Jeremy was gone, they used to watch Pirates of the Caribbean together. And he had his DVD and he was holding it and he said, we're going to watch this next time. And he put it away. I said, Sean, there's not going to be a next time. And Sean was really sad because that's another thing that happens with victims, especially when it's someone that they truly trusted right. and truly liked. I can't comprehend that this person isn't that person anymore. Right. And Sean missed him. Yeah. He had an an attachment with him. Yeah. And they did a lot of fun things. So I had to deal with that as well, that it's like, okay, you did have fun with Jeremy and it wasn't all bad, but then he did something bad and he knew it was bad. And I tell Sean that all would tell Sean that all the time. He knew exactly doing sweetheart he knew it was bad he knew it was wrong and he knew he would get in and you were so brave by telling me yes he and he's that brave boy he he he's a superhero you should tell him that for me he's a superhero because he saved so many potential victims by by sharing that secret with his mom whom he knew there are no secrets with i mean he's commendable for that we were at the courthouse and they were telling him how much he was a hero. And he's like, I know. <laughs> Cause he oh heard it. But, um, yeah, really, really hard. And this is what a lot of sexual victims face. This was the hardest thing for me. He faced 60 to a hundred years in prison if we went to trial. Okay. And the DA said to me, we do not like to put kids on the stand. So we plea bargain as much as we can. And they don't like to put kids on the stand. Why? Because they're not good witnesses or are they worried more so about the traumatic re-victimization that can occur? It can be both. I know. Because every time you interview someone and every time you interview an adult, things change just a little bit. You know, here I'm trying to remember dates that happened and and changing things. When you get a little kid, if it changes just a little bit, right, or if they don't want to talk, so it is reliving the trauma and they may not make a good witness. Right. What I don't understand is they video and audio tape him. They videotaped and audio taped him when they first interviewed him. And I asked, why can you not use that? In lieu of a testimony? And the response is, every defendant, every person is entitled to face their accuser. A videotape is not facing your accuser. So I understand if you're accused of something and it's you want that person that accused you to be there. However, when it comes to a sexual crime, I think everybody knows this. The last person you want to see again is that person who victimized you. And recount what happened to you. I'm sitting right there, especially when they're, when, like, with your son, who, you know, and and with a lot of sexual abuse victims, especially children, there's a grooming process that happens. Their abuser develops this trust with that with their victim they develop this attachment they develop this relationship and so you know there's an aspect of the victim that feels guilty saying something and that's so 
crucial to point out the way you handle that is so important. I think a lot of people, when anybody who has a child that comes to them and tells them, hey, I have a secret I was told not to share, and then goes into a canting an incident that sounds similar to a sexual assault, your immediate reaction is going to want to be anger and, you know, I, I, wanting to go after that person. I mean, that's, that's just normal. I think that's just innate in us. We're, we're bred biologically as parents, you know, to protect our kin. But reacting like that only makes them feel responsible and more guilty for saying something. Yeah. I, so being in the room with that person and having to recant in that in a law enforcement criminal justice uh, setting is going to be so more difficult for the abuser or the victim rather. And we didn't even get the opportunity because I, I asked them, do I have any say in this matter? And they said, no, we're just telling you as a courtesy. So he bargained for 17 to 20 years. So he went from 60 to life that he could have faced if you went to trial, but going to trial meant that Sean would have to get on the stand. So instead they offer a plea bargain and he got how many years? 17 to 20. So how many years is he serving? He is because he got milestones. Oh, that's a whole other topic we can talk about on another podcast. (laughs) Yeah, he is getting out in 17 years. Okay. All right. So I think 2028. I mean, you know me, you know, my history, you know, my grandfather, you know why I'm here and what the objective of my book is and what the objective of this podcast is. And it's not just about sexual crimes. It's about advocating for the victims and, and in doing so, that also means advocating for criminal justice reform. And I think your situation with your son highlights exactly where we can create some reform. What would you like to see discussed or challenged so that any future victims like Sean don't have to see their abuser serve a fraction of what they really should have served? Well, like I said, he was interviewed. Sean was interviewed. They're going to interview right. anybody. Yep. That interview should be shown in court. Right. In and that should of, be, that could be his testimony. Right. In lieu of, and if they want to question him, the defense, then that can be done in a interview, not in front of everybody either. Another tape. Without the defendant there. Right. Let's see attorneys. Almost like a deposition. Right. Of course. Yeah. But. Okay. They need their voices heard. That's okay. Of course. I mean, imagine, imagine having a nonverbal child. Right. Now, how are they going to testify? That was just going to be my question. Yeah. So that person is going to get a plea bargain, if you will. I saw the counts that he was facing, and I saw the counts that they actually charged him with on the plea bargain. Very different. It doesn't do justice to what happened. Of course not. I, I had parents say to me, well, that's why I never let a stranger watch my son. And I had to tell them, or my child, and I had to tell them a couple things. One is, it's not always a stranger. Right. That's such <laughs> a key thing. Most remember. Somebody you know. Mm-hmm. And quite often, it's somebody you know. Right. Exactly. And he waited two and a half years to do something. And the reason I know this is because that's when I started seeing changes in Sean's behavior. And 
that's the red flag. When something happens, when something's going on, I'm not going to say absolutely 100% of the time, but a vast majority of the time, you're going to see a behavior change. Right. One that's not been witnessed before, like the bedwetting and the touching himself. There could be a regression in behaviors. Of course, yeah. There could be new behaviors that never happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, with even with verbal kids, even with non-developmentally disabled, right? Eating, um, anorexia, eating disorders, things like that. A lot of an increase in anxiousness, which with kids we know really comes out with constantly saying they don't feel well and wanting to stay home. When real, really, there's a lot more going on there. You know, not wanting to go to school. Yeah. I honestly don't remember the statistics, but I knew this at the time. The special needs child or any child tells you that they have been sexually abused. Take it very, very seriously. Absolutely. Now, I said in the group home that they did that a lot, but that was emotional development. And that was to get back at the staff and it usually right. coincided with staff took something away. Sure. So they made this allegation. Right. But when kids tell you that something happened, take it very seriously. Absolutely. And, and take it and, and respond in the way you did where you didn't try to make it like you didn't react like they had done something wrong because if you react with emotion, the child, because they don't have the cognitive ability to understand the gravity, they're going to respond to your emotion as if they did something wrong by telling you. You don't want that. You want your children to feel comfortable coming to you with anything. And so the way you responded is so, so important for our listeners to know if ever that happens to them. And I'm not going to lie, after I left my son's bedroom, I went into my bedroom and fell on the floor and just started crying. I can only imagine. I Yeah, I can only imagine the things that you were feeling and thinking and how how strong and how hard it must have been to keep it together in front of them, but you did. So it's commendable to you too, because that allowed Sean to feel safe speaking about it even more and opening up to the person that you were with at the time and then feeling comfortable with the police. And so I, I would imagine that now the long-term effects are less severe and had you have reacted with anger and emotion so could you share with us like how Sean is doing now he's great now I mean he says he's great we talk about I I run the back and forth I vacillate between do I say something do I not say something he's not said anything I don't say anything but I have asked him I have talked to him about it um, and let him know that he's free to talk about it as well. Because that is another thing. A lot of people don't know this and don't realize this. But there is something called the victim's compensation. Oh, right. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Victim's compensation provides counseling. Yep. Provides therapy. I went to therapy myself. I left it an option for Sean should he need it. Because he was already going to all these groups. And he has since been to a healthy relationships group and other things through the regional center. But make sure because they don't necessarily, unfortunately, treat the victim as the victim. As somebody who's been through something very, very traumatic, I don't care how old you are, male or female. And a lot of victims don't know about getting therapy. Right. 
And even if they do know it, it's like, I don't want to go through the effort. It's effort to get it. And they don't want to also, they fear wanting to talk about it any more than they already have. But talking about it and processing it is part of that healing. And victim's compensation doesn't cost you. Oh gosh, that's so incredible for our well, listeners to know. They're being, they're given a certain amount of sessions mm-hmm. and it doesn't cost, that's but you incredible. have to make sure that you ask about it. And this is again, when you're advocating for, for changes, there should be automatic, right? Automatic. This is what we're going to give you. This is where you go. I know this because I worked in a prison. There is a form to fill out for victims that when your perpetrator goes to prison, you fill this out so that when they get out, they cannot be around you, near you, contact you. Uh, I filled it out for Sean um, so that he can't be 35 mile radius. Oh, great. When Sean turned 18, he had to fill it out for himself and we sent that in. Good. Um, but again, and they have to notify you too when he's released. When right? he's released, right. yeah. absolutely. Good. And again, people don't know this. No, I know this because I worked in prison. Right. So there should be a standard. If like the rape kit is a standard kit that every rape kit should have the same thing in it, there should be a follow up kit, if you will. Yeah. Resource aftercare. Yeah. And aftercare. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing is now. The great idea. Hey, you're done. Criminals proceedings did or did not happen. But now you're left with this. Right. And, and, and that's another thing. Yeah. We're, yeah. That's another thing I'm trying to bring awareness to is that. It's hard enough being the victim. Like with when you describe Sean having to get the photographs taken, that's another aspect of, of a rape kit is that your body's the crime scene when you're a sexual assault victim. And so in order to get the evidence to to go after your abuser, you you have to put yourself in these really vulnerable situations where evidence is collected things are being scraped under your nails you're being swabbed you're being photographed in front of strangers in law enforcement and it's it's daunting it's, it can take hours of a day post the trauma so it's just it's re-traumatizing to go through that we need to do more for the victims because if they're going to go through all of that to seek justice so that the abuser or the the assailant is not able to victimize another person then we need to take care of the victim as well and so you make you make a very good point the aftercare the aftercare so important so important because I've had clients that, you know, 10 or 15 years have gone by and they haven't been functioning well those 10 or 15 years. Right. And a lot of it is their family didn't believe them. Of if course, that's a big one. Partner. And again, that goes back to that diffusion of responsibility. I'm, I'm going to deny this because ex- believing them means I have to do something about this. It means that I have to accept that this happens. And not just getting counseling right after but it's got to be an ongoing process yeah agreed because whereas it might not be affecting you right now because you're still kind of numb and in shock and right. in disbelief you're having and that post-trauma response yeah and, it, and first just for the record everyone's post-trauma reaction is different 
There's no one way that someone responds to trauma. So I think that's another really important thing to throw out there. Go ahead. Yeah, if people say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Right. They're not That fine. doesn't mean they're fine. No, it's, yeah. It's like, like when you've been in it. Are, yeah. But oftentimes, right. not. No, it's like when you've been in like a near accident and you like, you're, you're driving and you swerve and someone almost hits you and you go into like adrenaline mode, but then 20 minutes later, your body is now no longer getting getting that rush of adrenaline, and so you start to feel the after effect, which is like that shakiness, the heart racing, all of the things that happen after the, the trauma has settled. And so sometimes that post-trauma reaction can be very delayed, yes. you know? And things will trigger it. Absolutely. So you go to therapy now, and you feel fine. And then like with Sean, my big fear was when he had said, Jeremy's he is white. I thought, okay, once he hits puberty and he realizes what that was, what is going to happen? Because he'll one day realize possibly, oh, this is why it was white. He ejaculated. Mm-hmm. And that can set him off. I see. Right. And that you don't know when that will be for him because you've got this added layer of that developmental delay. Right. So you don't know when his mental age will catch up to understanding what that difference really is and when it'll hit. So it could be any, it could be tomorrow. It could be 10 years from now. You never know. And you're right. So everybody listening, if you know anybody, make sure that they know about that aftercare. And, and yeah, they engage I have women that got raped in, in high school. And then 40 years, 30 years later, something happened with their husband. They got in a fight and just suddenly had flashbacks And now they're a mess because they didn't do anything at the time and they kept it bottled up and then something triggered them. Right. Or they, they're in denial of it. Like this isn't really anything. I, I didn't say, I didn't, I said no, but I didn't force them off me. So it was consensual then. Like that's what they think in their mind just to stay in denial, not to tap into what happened. And then years down the line, they'll come to understand, wait a second. No means no. I shouldn't have force you off of me. I shouldn't have to do all of those things. And so then they, it kind of just hits them. And then that's when it's like very powerful. They start to connect with everything that they've repressed or tried to push aside. So it's not normalizing the behavior, but normalizing the person's feelings about the behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. And remembering as the person that they're telling that it's not about you, it's about them. So you need to be what they need, not what you need. And even if what you need is to scream and drive over to the person's house with the authorities and storm in or, or, you know, whatever it is that you initially want to do, it's not about you. Making it about you makes them feel guilty. Make it about them like you did. Okay, tell me about this. Okay, I'm so glad you told me because there are no secrets. And keeping it calm and not making him feel guilty for sharing, but supporting that they shared. And not asking questions like, well, what did you do? Right, exactly. Why Why weren't your pants on? Or why did you wear a skirt that day? Or why did you choose to take public transportation? No, uh uh-uh. Existing does not mean that you're inviting people to violate you. Plain and simple. And when someone is in a position of power, you know, there's a lot of times where you say, why didn't I just walk out? Well, because I was really afraid of what was going to happen to me when I did. 
Right. I was more afraid of what would happen if I walked out. I'm going to have that conversation on another podcast because there's a lot of that happening right now and coming to light with Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and the victim shaming that happens. And I'm going to talk about that in another episode. But thank you so much for sharing your story and Sean's story and for shining a light on the reform that we could start talking about when it comes to trials, when the victim is a child, least of all a developmentally delayed child, and how to ensure that appropriate justice is served, whether they testify or not. And then the importance of the aftercare. Yes. I can't, cannot agree more with you on that one. Any other last things that you wanted to share? If anybody has any questions or wants to know any more information, they can always email me. Okay. I'll, I'll put your email on our blog. Okay. So that they can reach out. I'm also going to put some information about the victim's compensation fund so that people can access it and know about it. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Larman. Thank you. Tell Sean he's still a superhero. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but I will definitely share it. Okay. And I will talk with you soon, okay? Take care. Stay safe. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.